Welcome to Speak Sex. I'm your host, Steve Eurydice. Um, I am excited about uh, introducing you to today's guest, uh, Dr. Leah Lees. She's a psychiatrist based in Southampton, I believe. Uh, yep. She's known as the uh, shameless psychiatrist, which is yes. such a powerful adjective to take on. So, yeah. Thank you and commending you uh, and appreciating you for that, <laughs> for bridging yeah. that, for, you know, bridging that uh, kind of like a dichotomy there. Um, yeah. yeah. Right. Between like uh, the respect and the power of the psychiatrist and the, the MD and, you know, the body <laughs> and all its and all its truths. Um, so Dr. Lea is a double board certified um adult and child psychiatrist, and um, she's committed to providing mental health care for children and teens and, you know, uh, reducing shame and changing the way we talk with them about uh, sex and also the way that we adults, um, you know, understand our participation and contribution to, um, you know, changing and improving our, our own mental and sexual health through trying to help our children. So I yes. think it's kind of a double, right? It's a, it's a self-actualization and, and, and a self-growth in, in a way um, when we, you know, consciously try to help our children, uh, you know, not grow up with all of the traumas <laughs> that we yes. have and all the confusion <laughs> and not have yep. to... Not have to like unlearn as much. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Dr. Lea, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, how you chose this field. Um, I, you know, if, if there is a, a personal narrative involved or, you know, what, what called you to uh, specialize in this. And then I will have a number of questions about. Um, you know, what I, what I feel are uh, challenges, you know, nowadays, especially in the time of quarantine? Yes. Well, Eve, um, I have always uh, wanted to be a, to work with kids as a, some kind of therapist, psychiatrist. When I was 15, I started working in Hillside Hospital, um, with, uh, which is in Long Island, with kids with attention deficit disorder, and then moving on up the line to doing my first research project at uh, 18, 19 at Dartmouth on electroconvulsive therapy in teenagers and in children, which was very controversial, um, but obviously for uh, children who weren't eating or uh, weren't getting out of bed. Um, and then I moved to, you know, uh, cognitive neuroscience major in college, um, then I uh, went to New York Medical College and always knew I was going to be a child psychiatrist from the start. It's definitely my calling. I'm so lucky to have a passion. And why I wrote the book, No Shame, Real Talk to Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence and Healthy Relationship is because um, of the Me Too movement. I just got tired of, you know, it started well before that because it's not like that was a keen surprise to me as a child psychiatrist. But, you know, this idea that um, a lot of times I saw you know, both boys and girls being assaulted because they weren't able to effectively communicate their boundaries. And um, I'm not like blaming the victim here or anything like that, but their language around consent was so poor that they put themselves in harm's way. I think a lot of times these situations could have been avoided had they been given the language and the tools and been given permission 
to speak so much more openly about what they like and did not like. And it wasn't just sexual assault. That was such a small piece of it. The the thing that really got to be in my bonnet was the fact that so many girls and boys were not enjoying the sex they were having. They felt obligated to have sex and, you know, they were not enjoying it. They were not experiencing pleasure. And that made me so sad. And I used, I always tell the little kids I work with, if you could do the crime, you could do the time. So if you're having sex, we're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about masturbation. We're going to talk about pleasure. We're going to talk about orgasms. And they always looked at me terrified. And I'm thinking, well, don't you ever talk about this with the, your, the person you're having sex with? And they looked at me like, no, I can't believe you would talk about it. You just do it. I'm like, hmm. So this is why I wrote this book. It's like start starting with a parenting book, obviously. I'd really love to uh, eventually communicate with children directly, although I don't think they'd read a book. So I started making little YouTube videos for them. Um, and I really want to, you know, really get in there and, and start to talk about shame and how we communicate. So that's my background. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's exactly what the mission of this podcast is. You know, like you just named it. You might as well have named it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's also, it's, it's very dear to my heart in the sense of I have a 20-year-old daughter. I raised her as a single mom. And so because I'm an artist and a writer, I was like the cool mom. So, you know, a lot of all of her friends basically grew up at my house and would come to me when they would have, you know, s sexual crisis, whether it's yeah. identity crisis or, you know, unexpected consequences or huge questions or even like these basic questions like, why don't I feel anything, <laughs> you know, when I'm, when I'm being intimate. So, um, and they, you know, and they, and they all said that there is no one I, c I can trust, you know, I don't trust anyone to tell me the truth, which is also part of what we're experiencing, I think, in the modern, in the modern moment is, you know, a, a lot of teenagers, just like a lot of adults, are not sure which, uh, you know, version of the truth to, to trust. Um, and, and yeah, um, you know, in, I feel like in our generation, so in, 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 a, in, in a lot of the parents' generation, there was no language, you know. So it, it's not like most of us grew up with, you know, a, a, a fluency, a linguistic fluency when it comes to, like, our sexual choices, which then we could pass on to the children, right? Um, and it's, it's just shocking to think that, you know, like so many generations after the sexual revolution, you know, when we've made so much progress with like, you know, the pill and in vitro insemination and like DNA paternity tests and you could go down the list, you know, uh, sex change, uh, you know, like medical sex change, hormonal sex change, you know, and I mean, I, it's uh, the list of like the, the, the changes that have been achieved on the, let's say, scientific you know, uh, level um, is extraordinary in the past two or three uh, generations, but that hasn't been updated in like the interpersonal and, and you know, linguistic um, level. So the average person still finds it very awkward to speak about sex um, to, you know, especially their children, especially within family, which is supposed to be like, the sacred non-sexual environment and i feel like yes. and, and i feel like the, the the most basic confusion there is that you know uh, people many people still kind of think that speaking is the same as doing 
<laughs> you know, so like, you know, when I say, I, I, I try to say the most, you know, the place where you start is speaking sex is not having sex. It's totally yeah. different, you know, but somehow it feels, it feels tainted um, in, in a similar way. So, um, you know, everything is kind of like, in, it stays in the place of like metaphors and generalizations, yeah. Um, or, or and fear mongering, really. I mean, if if parents do choose to talk to their kids about sex, it's it's to scare the crap out of them, <laughs> pretty much, you know. Uh, but the little they do say, uh, you know, oh, you're going to get pregnant, or oh, he just you he just wants to to have sex with you. He doesn't, really, you know, you know, all, all boys that age just want to have sex. They don't really like care about you. They won't, you know. Are you? It's all this kind of fear mongering, and and it's such a shame because it's not what I see. You know, both the boys and the girls in my practice genuinely, you know, want to have sex in a romantic, intimate, fulfilled situation, but they're taught that they shouldn't want to have a boyfriend or girlfriend because it won't last. Which you know, oh, you're just going to go off to college and break up. I'm like, so what? <laughs> you know, so what? You know, let them form this bonded relationship. Let them have an intimate sexual relationship in high school when you're safe to protect them from, you know, you're there to be a shoulder to cry on. Like, that's a great, that's what you want. Why are you discouraging it as a parent? And, um, you know, this whole idea that like, I mean, have we all still bought into the idea that your first sexual partner is going to be your husband or wife? I mean, come on. I mean, everyone knows that's not reality. So why do we push these messages that are in a completely, you know, unrelevant to society now, instead of saying, yes, have a boyfriend or girlfriend, get your heart broken, do it here. Now what I, you have me to be your sounding board while you're safe in this loving home. That's what we should be pushing for. Now I'm not saying when they're not ready, not when they're yet too young to really understand what that means, but when they are ready, then, you know, and there's ways to assess that, obviously, and I can talk you through those ways. But, like, when they are ready, that's what we should be hoping for, and that's what we should be pushing for, not random drunk sexual encounters at some dumb party that they, you know, will probably yeah. not even barely remember. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's so true, yeah. And so what do you feel uh, uh, would be some systemic changes, um, you know, in the way that we we handle this issue of like you know a lack of um, a respectable language and a normal normative you know social you know exposure to you know sexual dialogue and right you know what could be a systemic change that would actually uh, you know in a, in a generation or two make everybody <laughs> you know, shame free. Sex positive. Yeah. yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I can think of a lot of things, but I think in terms of our education and parenting, um, it's explaining consent from a very early age around, but not around sexuality, but just around the body. This is my body, my body's bubble, who is allowed into my body bubble and how do I want to be touched is something that should be taught you really young kids, two, three, four, five years old. I, I, you know, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't be spanked. You shouldn't be, you know, touched in a way that's uncomfortable. You don't like, you shouldn't be forced to be tickled by a parent when you don't want to be tickled or anybody for that matter. Um, and you get to choose who touches you and, and you get to express how it feels like 
if that feels good, please brush my hair. I like that. I like to have my back scratch. Will you, back, will you scratch my back? And as a parent, you should say, can I scratch your back? You know, there are things that parents have to do. They have to brush your teeth when you're little. They have to comb your hair. And you explain that whether or not you like this kind of touch, I'm going to have to do it because it's important for your health. But other kinds of touch you get to control. And that's like, that's how it starts. So that's one yeah, systemic change. Yeah, that's a beautiful, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful first step uh, because we teach them to give the body a voice, right? Instead mm -hmm. of like keeping it, you know, like... Uh, silenced and and like the nether regions right you mm -hmm. know like the, the the devalued aspect of us right mm -hmm. or like mm -hmm. the mind or the soul or whatever is higher yeah mm -hmm. so that's a great um that's a great start go ahead and then you know it, it can move up the you know it can certainly be taught in schools all about you know who, who the the proper terminology for the body parts labia scrotum vagina anus vagina's on the inside you don't see it so you're not seeing someone's vagina unless you know you're looking for it um and and uh <laughs> you know so therefore you know we have to give them the proper names for their body parts we have to teach them how to clean them up and how to keep them safe and all those things that can be taught very easily in schools should be taught in schools and then you know children who know the names for those things are less likely to be assaulted and more likely to be believed uh, a sexual predator goes up to a kid and the kid says, please don't touch my vulva. I don't like that. The, the guy's running for the hills because they know what that means, right? Yeah. They're like, that kid knows what that means. It's definitely going to tell his parents, right? And um, more likely to be believed because when you go into the police officer's, you know, office and says that man over there touched my vulva, immediately they'll believe that child. So like, you know, both of those things, you know, so I think around the actual proper names for the, the body parts. And then it goes all the way up to this idea of we're all responsible for consent. Consent is not just me and you negotiating something. It's also society is responsible for consent. We have to stop creating situations in which it's easy for consent to be violated. For example, you know, it's amazing to me that when I'm at a bar and there's a drunk girl to see how many men swarm around her looking to pick her up. That is disgraceful behavior. And, you know, obviously she cannot negotiate consent so i do believe that it should start with consent monitors at parties like they have at the house of yes which is a great nightclub in manhattan in which they have people with our band saying you know where are the consent monitors if you feel uncomfortable if someone is touching you in the way you don't like you come to me we will make sure it gets taken care of but it could happen at frat parties where one fraternity provides a cons sober consent monitor to another party to make sure there are no drunk boys or girl, I mean, men or women who are falling over or stumbling. If they are, make sure they get home safely. They have a friend to walk them home who they can feel like they can trust that they follow up with that person the next day to make sure they got home. Okay. And we can create the cultural change that's needed to protect our young people um, and protect their bodies. It's not just about, you know, it's creating a framework around consent yeah and also you know i feel that if if there is you know a a widespread consciousness about sexuality and acceptance and you know separation of you know the actual like biological and physical hormonal you know experience from like the moral aspect right mm -hmm. if we if we somehow like turn this around and agree that like 
being sexual is morally good because everybody is and without it like the species will die and we don't need like the government coming in and putting a stamp that we're married before we can be sexual you know uh, then once we kind of separate you know free sexuality from all from all that kind of like moral uh, ancestral patriarchal you know baggage uh, of like which human owns whom, then mm-hmm. I think that, you know, naturally people won't need to get drunk or medicated, you know, high in order to like, you know, mate or flirt or, um, you know, go, go ahead and be sexual. Because, you know, part of the reason that, that, you know, so many, especially of the young, you know, get drunk or high before they can like relax enough to get sexual is the, is the, the extreme discomfort because there is something in their social conditioning that tells them Shame. that this is, yeah, that this is taboo, that this is dirty, that this is frightening, that there is loss involved, you know, that there is huge risk involved. So like, sep- you know, cleaning up that narrative, I feel, would, you know, I- inevitably uh, change the tendency to, to drink or, or, you know, smoke or get high or whatever it is, uh, you know, ketamine. I mean, there is like a, the list changes of, of, <laughs> of, the, of the ways of like self-medicating, but it's just a, a very common, uh, at least like passage into adulthood to be sexual because your body, your hormones want you to through, um, you know, inebriation, through loss of consciousness, because being conscious and sexual is so hard still to our day, because, you know, we're, we're burdened with, like, um, all of those, uh, as you said, messages. you know, all of those no's, yeah, all, all, you know, all of those messages that tell us, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Yes, <laughs> I agree, and we lost, even we lost though, sight of it. Even we're, like, built to do it. <laughs> Yeah, and we lost sight of the reason why we do it. Obviously, it's to reproduce, but no, it's it's really for pleasure. I mean, it lights up your your dopamine system like nothing else. We're hardwired to do because it feels good. It's pleasurable. And and that's why we're so motivated to do it because it feels good. It's pleasurable. And for some reason, we have taught our children – you know, to fear it and to not really embrace their ple- their pleasure and their sexual pleasure. I mean, even as early as, you know, how we handle masturbation in our culture is, is kind of strange, you know. Um, I have, like, parents who'd say, well, I don't like when my, you know, son or daughter has their door locked because I don't know what they're doing in there. And I'm kind of looking at them like, hello, they're masturbating, like, why would you want to walk in on that? You know, like give them their space, you know, what do you think they're doing in there? I mean, unless you really believe your kid is like got like a drug den in there or doing something terrible, which is not the case. The majority of the kids like give them their, their privacy to explore their bodies. Don't like walk in on them or not allow them to have a door lock because like, what do you think is going to happen? Like, of course they need their, their space to explore their bodies. They don't want you walking in. Um, I don't know. I think it's very, it's very strange and backwards how we, you know, we put up these barriers for them to become successful um, adults, happy uh, adults who experience pleasure. Uh, Also when they go through their period of first sexual initiation, and I hate the term lose your virginity. I'm sure you feel the same way. Do they don't lose anything. They they gain (laughs) entrance into an, 
into a new world, right, of, of, of pleasure and excitement. Um, so I call it sexual initiation. And when it comes to sexual initiation, we don't, we don't give them a safe place to do it. They don't, we don't, we don't create in a safe environment, like, you know, identifying a place where they should have sex, identifying the birth control they should be using, you know, kind of helping them along navigate those waters and also saying, how was it? Are you okay? How are you feeling about it as a parent? You know, um, can I, can I help you? Can I give you some advice? Yeah, and I feel that that cuts both ways, you know, because that, that's why it's, imp- that's why my, you know, my question, my challenge, at least to myself always, is how do we do a systemic change, you know, because I feel that what happens is that, yeah, even, you know, you in your work, you know, will, you will see a number of people and that number of people may get helped and may, you know, have a better time or raise, you know, healthier children or adolescents. And that's fine. Um, but the overall society, you know, we as a society have to make like a systemic kind of like, you know, mass change. Otherwise, it doesn't really make so much of a difference because, you know, the peer pressure remains the same. You know, I mean, I experienced it as a mom. Um, you know, I, I definitely, uh, you know, spoke in, uh, with my daughter from the get-go I respected her choices before she could speak. <laughs> I respected her body and I gave her agency, you know, long before she even had agency because that was so important to me because that's, you know, the field that, you know, I've been working on. Um, but I, I did dis- discover again and again and again that society, you know, would kind of like force me to, uh, you know, sp- hide or my, you know, my like full identity in order to protect her from like shame, from being shunned, um, you know, so like if I was a writer, I was a writer, but when I, when I was writing about sex, I, fa- I found that, you know, kids in school, in elementary school would talk about it and, you know, shame her. Um, then later, a- as an adolescent, again, I saw, you know, when, when they need to uh, individuate, which is very norm- normal and normative, you know, there is a, a, a moment different perhaps uh, in age in every child, but inevitably a parent who is, you know, devoted to her children, a mother, will find that the child needs to pull away and reject that, you know, that uh, narrative in order to choose for themselves and discover themselves and not just be a copycat. And at Whenever that is, you know, then they kind of like espouse what their peers say. So unless the peers are also kind of like equally uh, enlightened and, 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 and relaxed and open about this type of, uh, you know, topics, then they, the child, even the child of like, let's say, you know, an uh, enlightened or conscious parents will adopt this kind of like old decayed narratives because they want to be like their peers or because that will be their alternative to like, uh, you know, rebel. You know, it's like, the, you know, if you're, if you're progressive and your child becomes conservative or whatever you want to call it, I'm just trying to simplify things. But basically, if there is, if, if as a society we can somehow, you know, embrace sexuality and make it a positive part of life for everyone from the get-go, right, then it will be easier. 
to yes, kind of like, you know, s sustain this level of like, you know, health. And it will never change like anxiety or mental health or, you know, disorders. Or I mean, there are so many issues, you know, uh, body dysmorphia, gender dysmorphia. We can't fix everything, but just beginning <laughs> with a general, you know, um, saying yes to the body and its needs, right? Rather than no or, or hiding thing would be, yeah. would be um, yeah, a big social advance. And, you know, I always do wonder how that could happen. One way you mentioned is schooling, you know, starting very young in school and maybe like, you know, including it in like biology classes. So it doesn't even have to be called sex ed, you know, and it's like the human body, you know, from the get go, like what's, mm -hmm. you know, your body, your human body, how does it work? Um, and that's the Northern European approach to uh, consent and sexuality. They have, they have a, amazing sexual comprehensive uh uh the dutch uh, you know curriculum that starts in kindergarten and my favorite part about it i studied a lot when i was looking into my book is that um they talk about love a lot they talk about like how little kids can fall in love and they'll say well maybe you know johnny and bobby are in love and that's why they're acting like this like they'll actually they talk about it and they, they do also think a lot about gender and um, try to keep a lot of gender neutrality in their programs. They even have gender neutral preschools and gender neutral schools, um, which is, you know, I mean, definitely far out there. Um, and But I love their approach to love and how they talk about it so freely and openly. And they don't make it a construct about sexuality. They make it about something different and that even young people can, like young children can be in love. And that's something I wrote about in my book. It's like, you know, the heartbreak that could go along. I remember being like eight or nine and just falling in love with my friend that I met and like heartbreak when we were separated. Like it was terrible. Like, you know, and it wasn't sexual. It was just this horrible feeling because we were hard, we're hardwired to experience it. No matter how old we are, it doesn't just kick in because we're, you know, 13. Um, and that is something we can teach also how to cope and deal with rejection and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and how to um, kind of take ourselves, you know, more lightly. I feel that especially recently we have been, uh, n we have not been served well by identity politics because it comes with the assumption that an identity is something that kind of like, you know, is for life. And I feel personally that, you know, it would be so much healthier if we knew from the beginning, <laughs> when we're still formed or forming our ideas of the world, that you know we play roles and we play parts and we take on identities and we change. And I, our identities will keep changing and we can have multiple identities, social identities um, at once. So that you know, if, if we get rejected and if we find ourselves you know, hurt or we find ourselves leaving a relationship because we want to, there isn't all that guilt, you know, there isn't that assumption that like that identity uh, should have lasted for life. You know, you know I think that our, our understanding of like who we are, that we're changeable um, is, a, is another, um, you know, part of the narrative that could be improved on, you know, <laughs> um, so that we would have room for the unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. you know, life is full of. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. We can control it. So, um, 
knowing that, expecting that <laughs> would be useful, especially for, you know, for the younger generations who are not even, you yeah. know, who's like mental, uh, you know, capacities are not, you know, fully developed yet. So, yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you find the biggest concerns um, that you think are like most um, representative of the current, you know, generation, generation X, Z, the, you know, the, the internet, um, the children raised by the internet, on the internet, you know, the TikTok generation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my first question. And then I'll ask about quarantine. Well, you know, I do worry a lot about the impact of pornography on young children and developing minds uh, in general. I think pornography is not harmful, you know, used in moderation by an adult, but very young children who, and actually can be, you know, great and fun, and, but very young children watching pornography can be problematic because they don't have the framework or the context uh, to really process it. And um, so I can see issues of, you know, there's some studies that say that, you know, children who are watching, you know, teenagers watching pornography are more likely to use, uh, uh, you know, use, uh, uh, try kind of sexual um, things that are not quite ready for more violent sex acts than other children, uh, other teenagers. And also, um, you know, teenage girls who watch a lot of pornography are more likely to accept uh, more violence or have more self-esteem issues because they're trying to keep up with what they see in pornography or the body image ideals that you see in pornography, which are, you know, exactly perfect, you know, specimens of, of the human body, which are not, you know, realistic of what most teenage girls and boys look like. And so, you know, I think pornography is a real problem and um, we should do the best we can as parents to keep our young children away from it, our t young teenagers away from it. And then, when they are, you know, at some point you can't control them. Like obviously they have access and at that point it's more, how do you um, allow them to be really responsible connoisseurs of pornography? So everything from ethical, ethical pornography, like how do you uh, find ethical pornography to um, how to understand that you do not need to be like them or, you know, compete with them or that, you know, consent is happening off camera um, prior to being filmed um, and that uh, sexually transmitted diseases and, you know, contraception also occurs off camera in ways that you don't see, um, but, but usually is going on. So, you know, they, uh, they have a basic understanding of that might be less affected by it in a negative way and maybe can use it in a positive way. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I feel that the, a big confusion there is also, I don't know if you agree, you know, the, um, it, it's an un, un, uh, unexpected outcome, I feel, of like women's sexual liberation, but what has happened is the conflation of like consent and uh, monetization. So, yeah. you know, f for me, it kind of leads to confusing moments, especially again for like young, you know, young women, young boys, young, you know, uh, youths, um, you know, who uh, uh, understand consent is something that can be given in exchange for money. Uh, and I think that, you know, um, that is very uh, 
complex because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's healthy. I wish we, we wouldn't do that because um, it kind of stretches the limits and confuses and challenges the whole, uh, you know, discussion and also the whole, you know, our, our whole like, cultural effort to, you know, make consent acceptable by all, you know. So on one hand, we ask all, you know, everyone, all genders to ask for consent. And on the other hand, we uh, kind of like allow uh, consent to include, a, you know, financial reward. So then mm -hmm. is it real or not? You know, because um, if those young people, if the young people who are employed in, in making porn are consenting um, to being, let's say, violated or raped on camera, uh, but they are, you know, being paid, paid and they have given their consent because they have, you know, been paid for it, then um, it leads to the idea that, well, w you know, you should consent to a partner who can pay for dinner or pay for movies or pay for a trip or pay for clothes. And then before you know it, it becomes hazy, you know, where, it's your, where is your agency, your will, your choice? And, uh, you know, w it, it just gets murky again. Uh, it gets, you know, brought back into that whole thing of like, you know, the male provider or, you know, all kinds of like uh, cliches that we should have left in the past that no longer mm -hmm. serve us. So, yeah, I think that, that that whole aspect of it, of like the profession uh, is a challenge. Um, and... You know, it's something that we as a society need to kind of clarify, maybe come up with like different words for the, you know, professional um, participation, make it more respectable and bring it mm -hmm. more in the light, you know. Um, yeah. Well, and there is a lot of ethically made pornography, which is what I like to um to view and encourage, you know, even uh, kids that are viewing pornography to think about if it's ethically made, uh, which means that, uh, you know, there's things written on the website about like how the actors are paid, where they're found, their ages, um, and how they do their STD testing. And, you know, um, you know, you can look it up. I mean, Erica Lust is very into yes, this and she, much, yeah. she, yeah. And she talks a lot about it and, you know, did this mom's made po make porn and, you know, I give her a lot of credit. I mean, she's, she is trying to do what you say, trying to make it, uh, a culturally relevant and, you know, um, and, and, and healthy for people, um, to view. And, and I think that, uh, that's something that should be explained to a teenager. And also, uh, you know, you can vote with your, you know, they say you can buy purchasing something, you vote with your 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 money, like if you buy grass fed beef, or you you know you know don't contribute to the pollution of the earth by you know buying green fuel or you know putting solar panels in your house. You can also think about how you buy your pornography. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truth. So, um, what are some of the challenges that you're hearing? You know, on. Uh, from from during the t from teenagers and parents during COVID, I'm sure there must be many because of quarantine. Yeah, right. Well, I think it's the rise. I'm calling it the rise of the lonely girl. Like like girls are really struggling with loneliness. They're very social creatures. 
you know, I'm not saying boys aren't as well, and I'm not trying to put a complete gender to this, but my experience is that girls um, really need face-to-face interaction. They need the smell, the touch of another girl or boy, the pheromones. Um, they're very, like their dopamine uh, reward system is like hardwired, hotwired to uh, need intense social um, bonding with their peers um, at, at that age. And for that matter, for the rest of their lives, but certainly in, you know, any parent of 12, 13, 14 year old girl will tell you that all they care about is their, their friends and they light up like a Christmas tree when their friend texts or calls. And, you know, you know, if you, they were just stuck with you all day long, they'll be miserable. And, you know, it's not just about the zoom calls. It's not enough. They need face to face. It's how they're hardwired. You know, our evolution does not really understand Zoom as to be a substitute for, you know, pheromones and all the nonverbal communication that's going on. So I definitely see like a huge uptick in loneliness, depression and self-esteem issues in teenagers, especially the girls I work with. Um, the boys are super happy playing, you know, online um, Media games and games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they don't seem to be as affected, you know, you know, I, it's my experience. I'm not saying. It does bear out in a couple of studies. They're, they're showing it out and bearing out in a couple of studies that are coming out. Um, it's certainly my experience. So for the teenage girls, I'm really encouraging co- parents to find COVID pods of, you know, like-minded families who are willing to allow the girls to interact. And if they're being homeschooled to, um, to really take into account their need for that kind of face-to-face interaction with other girls or boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure it has, you know, delayed like the, you know, sexual experience for for teens and you know preteens uh, throughout the world. Oh, yeah. So that's another, you know, I mean, if if, if I think about it, they're all kind of like halted, you know, kept back, like the freshman class, you know, going into college right now, you know, how they are uh, imp- impeded, you know, in their. Um, kind of like expectation to be free, to be on their own, to, you know, try, you know, life with their peers without the parents present. So when we think about that on, on like a worldwide level, that's, that's a huge, you know, uh, change, social change right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be stunting their development, uh, their sexuality and all of that. And you know, I just hope the vaccine comes out within like a year or you know, actually three or four or five months and kids can get back to some sort of normalcy by next summer. Because, yes, of course, it's stunting. It's stunting their development without question. The, you know, the only thing I'm not clear about is how long it's going to last for. I mean, there's been periods where people have been in war or were generations where they lost all the men to war and there were a generation of women who didn't have anyone to marry and you know they're obviously we all recovered we're still here you know there we, we will recover um but it's definitely affecting them and i've never been busier god knows, <laughs> you know <laughs> psychiatrist i mean i feel bad for my friends are losing their jobs but mine is certainly steady yeah yeah and that's beautiful and uh, you do take insurance right so i, f- mm-hmm. I feel that that's yeah uh uh that's Another one of those, um, you know, mass kind of like, you know, systemic changes or upgrades or, you know, or hacks that, you know, we need to do where insu- health insurance, you know, covers much more um, o- o- of the, not just therapeutic model, because 
you know, therapy implies, you know, some sort of um, illness or disease or, you know, discomfort, but also just the, you know, the, the supportive level, you know. So, for example, now there is like such a renaissance of coaches and coaching in all kinds of areas of, in life, you know. But then once again, that's only for the people who can afford it. Um, and it's not even covered by insurance, but, you know, for those who are insured. So, you know, in my, in my ideal world, at least, you know, that should all be covered by an insurance that's, you know, paid and available to more or less everyone, you know, because it's a very basic need for a healthier, happier society. So, yeah. Of course, I mean, the studies... I mean, the studies on this show that like every dollar we invest in mental health care comes back directly into tax dollars um, to uh, decrease crime, to less prison sentences. I mean, it is the most cost effective thing we could ever invest in as a society. The problem is, is that the health insurance companies don't see that benefit. It's the society like um, the criminal justice, the educational systems that see the benefit. So that's the problem. It's like different payers, different pockets, um, which is why I really believe that um, that mental health care system should be funded by the community because um, they're the one that directly reap the reward, reward from it. So they should have community mental health programs. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, so um, in, in a way, what would you compare it with? Like the same way that the community takes care of playgrounds or um, homeless people, libraries like, you know, or... Like you might have a homeless shelter in a community. Right. You might have, you know, you might have programs too for drug addiction in the community. You know, you put the mental health care system being funded by the community in, in mental health uh, clinics and they're funded by the community. The taxpayers pay for it. And the money goes right back, you know, because people won't drop out of high school and then they're more likely to get better jobs and then they're more likely to pay higher tax dollars because most people don't leave their communities. Uh, most people will stay to the community they were raised. And so you're investing in those those children that grow up to be productive members of society and then they don't train. They don't become addicts. They don't end up in jail. They don't, you know, so it goes right back back around and my community of Southampton we have a great mental health care system through this clinic called Family Service League which is actually funded by it's called, the sorry, local it's called what Service League fam Family Service League nice Family Service mm -hmm. and it's uh it's funded partially by insurance. They'll take Medicaid, Medicare, but and health insurance. But that only pays for like half of it because the health, the, the reimbursement rates are so low. And the other half comes from grants from the, the, the local governments uh, who recognize that they have no place to send their kids when they cut themselves or you know want to commit suicide at the school. They were sending them to the hospitals. Hospitals and doing anything. They got sick of it, so they funded this whole system to keep the kids out of the hospital, to, you know, create, put social workers in the schools where they could actually do, you know, treatment that, you know, the kids could then get evaluations with psychiatrists, you know, and everything. So it, and it's reduced the hospitalization rate, the death rate, everything by mag order of magnitude. And nobody would question uh, the use of that money and how it's been spent. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. And all, really, it's just like a local initiative and every locality could, you know, could consider it. Um, especially, you know, if you like tax dollars, <laughs> right? If the property values and the tax dollars allow for that. Yeah, I think that's great. 
That's the way to do it in America. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so tell us a little. So you wrote your book recently, right? Yes, it's called No Shame. Real talk with your kids about sex, self-confidence, and healthy relationships. And, um, and you know, you can look it up on uh, uh, com or uh, shamelesspsychiatrist.com. Um, and... It's basically, you know, a, it's a parenting book around, you know, raising your kids to be sex positive, body positive. And uh, it took me three years to write it. Um, and I'm really proud of it. Uh, I think it addresses a lot of things we're talking about today from like pornography to communication skills. I think one thing that you would really like from, you know, listening to your other uh, episodes of your podcast is this idea of being uh, owning your own sex story um in order to pass down intergenerational wisdom not trauma so how do you want to spin your sex story to pass down the right messages to your kids whether or not you were sexually assaulted or you just had a lot of failed relationships or you had a divorce or whatever it is your narrative is you can always spin that story and you can make it positive you can find the pearls of wisdom and you can pass down those instead of passing down all the scary trauma which just ends up creating intergenerational trauma um, and doesn't end up helping. So, you know, there's a whole uh, part of the book about that. It's something I'm really passionate about. Um, so no matter what your story is, there is a way to pass down the right, you know, messages. Yeah, that's beautiful. Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Passing down the positive and the empowerment, em empowerment, mm -hmm. right? Instead mm -hmm. of like the inner judge and the inner victim is so mm -hmm. much better. And if we like take a moment, you know, if we like slow down our reactivity and, and think about it, I think that's what we, will all, we would all choose, you know. But mm -hmm. sometimes we just kind of go unconsciously, you know, in this like uh, accelerated time, you know, scheduling that, that will... Uh, and we live in our emotional for no i'm sorry go ahead we live in our emotional mind instead of yeah. our wise mind you know we're just we're operating in this uh, state of emotion rather than the state of being wise um we're all capable of being wise at all times if we access that part through therapy through meditation through exercise through whatever right. calm that emotional mind down right and then you're able to access the rest yeah 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 i mean sometimes it's called the second reaction time you know which mm -hmm. is like don't do the first thing that you want to do you know <laughs> do the second <laughs> or you know like count to whatever you know a hundred a thousand or like take you know, 20 breaths or however many, you know, it's just, it's not about the numbers. It's, it's about slowing things down. So it gives you time to have agency to choose, yeah. you know, for yourself so that you can actually do something that represents you instead of like stuff you've picked up from, you know, your upbringing or TV or, you know, yeah. well, you know, whatever, uh, must like, you know, my social brainwash, <laughs> you know, has gone, has gotten to you. So, yeah, uh, you know, freeing our children from that is, I think, is a way to also, like, free ourselves from it. We learn as we teach our, our children, you know, we learn, we teach ourselves. So, th you know, that's how we started, and I feel it's a good place to close, you know, because it, it's an encouragement for, you know, for all parents or, you know, uh, co-parents or kind of like spiritual parents, that, you know, everything we teach, we also teach ourselves. So, it's a, yeah, 
double okay. double fulfillment. So thank you for yeah. coming. Um, You're welcome. It was a beautiful a conversation. Pleasure. We learned a lot, and uh, everybody, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, put all the notes about your uh, information, your book at the end of the show, and uh, we'll be in touch. And uh, until uh, everyone out there, until we uh, speak again, keep speaking sex. If I could make love incessantly, I would be God.